0: this is Tamsin Granger.
1: This is Dan Abuhoff.
0: With Tamsin and Dan read the paper again it's Sunday and it's April 7th 2019. Um, We've been reeling with all kinds of basketball fun. Yes. But we'll talk about that later.
1: That's right we'll get to that.
0: Meanwhile let's catch up on our thespian pursuits. Oh yeah
1: so uh, yes we went to a play this week. We went to The Cradle Will Rock at the Classic Stage. The Cradle cradle Will Rock opening. Was that Wednesday night? Yes. Wednesday night, yes. So the Cradle Will Rock is a curious thing, right? Curious is a
0: nice way to put it. Yeah,
1: well, it's a curious thing. Historically, it's interesting. So it comes out of a production uh, by Orson Welles, Mercury Theatre Company, in the late 30s, 1937, 1938. Uh, It's a play written by uh, Mark Blitzstein. And it was uh, how shall we say? It's described by various people and reviews too as an agitprop. In other words, it is a play which I've looked this up, which is for the purpose of political propaganda, particularly in theatre, and in this case, political propaganda uh, directed at the notion of uh, the advantages of a socialist society, basically crying out against the injustices in the existing society of the late 1930s, where of course. There was a lot of poverty, and the country was reeling uh, under a depression.
0: Well, it's about yeah. the development of unions. More specifically, extent. exactly,
1: yeah. yes. But you know, it's a, it's a broader agenda besides. But you're right; the play is focused on unions, and the the villain in the piece, and it's a very thinly veiled, uh, as we say, uh, political propaganda piece. So the uh, villain of the piece is named Mister Mister. The druggist is named Harry Druggist. The, uh, you know, they're all, they're all names like that. It, it's kind newspaper of... Newspaper
0: guys, Mr. Daly.
1: Exactly. <laughs>
0: um, and what was the reception of the original?
1: What uh, was the reception? It was... Um... Uh you know I I'm not even sure. I mean you know they closed the damn thing down. They wouldn't even let it open. No, no, tell no, the no, story. No no yes, but that that doesn't tell you what the reception is. Well
0: tell the story. All there right. Were, obviously there was great apprehension. Yes. By somebody. Right.
1: So the the story is that uh everyone knows that Blitzstein had written this play which is a so-called play with music in other words he wrote a lot of songs. And um
0: it was more like an opera than a Yes. Play.
1: And uh a singing play. Yeah play with music, and uh, as they were preparing it, word had gotten out that this company was going to be put on this really, in some person's views, anti-government play, and it was a theater company that was funded in large part by government money. So uh, the authorities, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, for a legitimate reason, perhaps not, found reason uh, that the play should not go forward and said that uh, the theater wasn't ready, whatever. They gave some pretext for the play not being <coughs> performed. Uh, and the theater was closed. And what Orson Welles and John houseman you remember John houseman Barely. Yeah, okay. Uh, he used to do the uh, the ads, uh, you know, we money, we earn money the old-fashioned way. Oh, right. We okay. earn, we earn right, it, right. yes. Continue with the story. Yeah, so in event they... Uh, they decided they're going to stage the play anyway. In this very odd way, they had to. They had all these rules that said that they couldn't perform. So, well, it's
0: th- ironically, yeah, the unions won't let the right. uh, performers perform, right? Since the show had been canceled or whatever,
1: right? So the players the because the actors are in a union themselves, they can't break the union rules. So they set up something outside the theater with a piano played by Mark Blitstein, and the performers sat in the audience. So they weren't performers; they weren't actors.
0: They were doing their parts from their seat in the right. audience.
1: Right. So they'd play the piano, and someone in the audience would stand up and sing, yeah. as it happens, and uh, that's the way they put it on. So and you know
0: how old Orson Welles was when he was directing this? He was in his twenties, I'm sure. He was twenty-two. Yeah. How crazy is that? Well, first of all, it's hard to believe he was ever twenty-two. Having seen him in various things but that's, in his older but age, but that's
1: around the same time he did War of the Worlds, right? Yeah.
0: So this is, uh, you know, War of the very Worlds. Creative. Be, be, I should say War of there. the Worlds,
1: being that the uh, the broadcast, the radio broadcast, which was to the effect that the uh, Martians are landing. It landed in Princeton Junction. Exactly right, New near Jersey. Rust, right, right,
0: you know, right down the street from.
1: Yeah. So it's very strange. So in any event. Uh, so, there's a, a strange history to the play, and it's, it's a political play. And uh, the question is, um, how does it come off today? And the answer is, it comes off as political propaganda, honestly. Uh, obviously, it's done very professionally. Uh, it's classic stage and directed by John Doyle, and you have some very capable actors in it. Uh, but it, it's a yeah, tough it had road to hoe. It did have excellent actors. But it's a tough road to hoe. It's uh, not My Fair Lady. No.
0: I mean, one of the uh, one of the key actors was Tony Gasbeck. right? And and a lot of the reviews said, but he didn't get to dance.
1: Yeah, he's a dancer, uh, right? what do he do? American in Paris, I think, or what do he do? Uh, on the Town, On the Town, on Broadway. Yeah, he's a great dancer, but he's a good singer. There's a lot of singing, and he's a strong presence. Uh, it, it, it but it's an odd duck. It's not the kind of thing you see normally. On Broadway or off-Broadway. So
0: it was educational.
1: It was educational. It was told interesting. It told me
0: something about the history of theater.
1: Yeah, well, here, you know, it's funny. So I looked up to see, uh, well, do you, you, you want to talk about the reception at all or not?
0: Well, because it was opening night, there was a party Yeah. afterwards. Yes. And that was the real fun for me because uh, we accidentally rubbed elbows with all these luminaries <laughs> by my standards. As one does, <laughs> um, right. And uh, so there was Chuck Cooper who was the headmaster in Choir Boy? Right. Uh, you spotted him right away. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a person named Lynn Cohen, who has been in a lot of stuff, including Sex in the City, and she's got to be in her 80s. People were like genuflecting.
1: Yeah, we didn't know she was. Right.
0: Um, and uh, Don McKechnie was there, John Cander was there, and uh, I spotted uh, Dylan Baker and Becky Baker his uh, wife, whom I had just seen in a production of a play reading at the Bucks County Playhouse in New Hope. So I popped right up and said to them, oh, I just saw you in New Hope, Pennsylvania. And we had a nice chat.
1: So uh, they must have been thrilled. How many people, first of all, how many people were at that performance in New Hope and how many people would have been at that performance in New Hope and then been in New York on that night? Like, Nobody. Like one. Like one. Uh,
0: and uh, anyway, but that is part of the fun of belonging to an organization like Classic Stage Company, uh, where you really, um, you it's a learning, it's an educational experience uh, with the theater, even when it isn't laugh a minute. And it also, you know, gets you the opportunity to be in a small space with people interested in theater. And some of them
1: are famous. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're all interesting people. They're all very creative. It also gives you an insight into what it's like to be an actor or a director or someone. I mean, again, it's not necessarily always the most popular entertainment. You're doing art for art's sake or maybe even for educational sake. It's just, it's different. It's not the way you normally think about it. It's not sitcom stuff. Right. So it's a different way to live your life. That's for sure.
0: Okay, so that was an interest, interesting, uh, and educational experience. And uh, meanwhile, we're also looking forward to tonight uh, some less than educational experiences um, <laughs> on the télévision, uh, specifically Killing Eve.
1: It's the second season of Killing Eve.
0: Which uh, is a is that a BBC?
1: Yes, BBC, BBC, BBC America drama. Yeah, Sunday night.
0: Um, Jody Comer oh.
1: yeah Jody Comer Sandra Oh and it was very well received last year super it's well received it's totally rece- weird we discovered it it's, it's someone heard about yeah. it on the podcast and then got a lot of acclaim
0: and so I guess so I guess that must be it it's totally anyway, offbeat it's, it's um, about this assassin so and we're gonna, the woman who stalks her you know, lose a few brain cells watching that yes, yes that's the few. and uh you're also curious aren't you a little curious about uh, curious fossey verdon
1: yeah curious, curious is the right word so there is a series called uh fossey verdon and uh it's based on a book about bob fossey uh bob fossey was famously married to Gwen verdon she's a great dancer he's a great choreographer and dancer and uh, I think they decided that it was more politically correct to feature both of them in the title. And, but she's obviously a prominent part of his story. And it's interesting to me to see uh, how they're going to do this. I mean, it's already been a great movie about Bob Flossy called right. All That Jazz, which I might have been Best Picture. A vague recollection. It certainly was nominated. And uh, here you, you know, so he's kind of a strange character. He's very, kind of odd. a
0: handful personality guys. Yeah, wise.
1: compelling guy uh, and uh, great dancer and great uh, stylist. But on the other hand, very self destructive. Is uh, this a series or a mini series? Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to pull those apart. I, it's, I think it's a mini series, it's just six episodes or something, oh, okay. I believe. And it stars uh, Sam Rockwell and uh, Michelle Williams. Sam Rockwell's done a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, he, he got an Oscar just for three billboards, uh, and you uh, recall he was the bad sheriff guy. And, and, you and just we've saw seen him on, him on Broadway. Stage, didn't yeah. You? Uh, well, we saw him together in the Sam Shepard thing a year or two ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah that's right. right. That's right. It was and, a while ago. Right, but he's he, he's in stuff all the time. He, he's in uh, he's in a new movie, and he's and Michelle Williams of course anyway, very well known. You're
0: kind of interested.
1: Kind of interested. You're not
0: really Mr. Choreography.
1: Oh yeah, I am Mr. Choreography. That's not the issue. The question oh, okay. is <laughs> the <laughs> question is whether the series is any good. It, it might be awful. So I'm, I'm not recommending, but you know, I'm curious. You you had the right word. On the small screen. Oh. And so, all right.
0: So, uh, so also on the small screen, we've been watching a fair amount of basketball. We watched the Final Four. Mm. And coming up to the Final Four, there was actually an article on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, about uh, two of the final four teams have the same school colors. That would be Auburn and UVA. And so I read the story about how those two schools got their colors, and it's really kind of fun. UVA uh, starts out with different colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, red and silver-gray. Some people say that's meant to be represent the blood on the Confederate gray uniforms.
1: That's what I thought of. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, the problem is, uh, if when you're wearing those for sports uh, on your uniforms, uh, the and you wash the uniforms, apparently the red would bleed into the gray. Really. And you'd end up with pink uniforms. <clears throat> well, that's. And uh, apparently the Cavaliers didn't go for that.
1: Really? Because, you know,
0: I will tell you right now. So they need, so a, you know, so they need a new (laughs) color. Where does it come from? Where? It comes from a fellow named Alan Potts. Alan Potts was, as the Wall Street Journal says, the Zion Williamson of the 19th century. He was, uh, he ran the 100 yard dash, three mile broad jump, played second baseman for the baseball team, and was running back for the football team. Okay. He was a superstar. He goes one summer to Oxford and he pals around. He tries out your favorite sport, rowing. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he pals around with the Grosvenor Rowing Club and ends up with a scarf with their colors, orange and blue. Okay, and so when he comes back to uh, Charlottesville, sporting the scarf. Okay, so meanwhile the whatever committee is trying to figure out what colors shall we change to, and uh, somebody looks at you know Mr. Popularity, Alan Potts, and says, "How about this? Will this do?" And holds up his Grosvenor Rowing Club scarf, and yes, so they adopt orange and blue. Okay. Meanwhile, a fellow named George Petrie has graduated from Virginia. He heads off to do graduate work at uh, Johns Hopkins University, uh, where a professor he has is kind of obsessed with this brand new sport, football. Okay. That professor is, you'll never get this, Woodrow Wilson. Really? Woodrow Wilson was obsessed with football. So Petrie learns all about football. And then when he gets a job at Auburn, okay, he starts a football team. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're trying to figure out what color to use. And, of course, naturally, there are a lot of reasons exactly how it came about. But naturally, he just says, okay, we, we can use orange and blue. That's a good, you know. Those are good colors. And uh, so Auburn adopts orange and blue, the UVA colors, because Petria is an alum of UVA. Okay. There's one other funny little story. Okay. That goes with this. And that is that years later, a professor um, at Auburn takes some students to England. All right. And they visit the Grosvenor Rowing Club. and regale them with the story of, uh, you know, how the um, colors came about at UVA and Auburn. And the Grosvenor Rowing Club lets them in on a secret, and that is their colors were not orange and blue. Yeah, what were they? They were gold and blue, but gold would be expensive to paint on your um, blades, Hmm. on your... The blades of your oars, right? right? So orange was as close as they could get.
1: All right. so right. So isn't that a fun story? I will say that uh, my high school, the colors were orange and blue. That uh, when I worked at a camp, uh, the colors were uh, scarlet and gray. Uh, which is a perfectly good color combination. It's surprising
0: you didn't go to Auburn or UVA. How would oh, you end up at Princeton?
1: I don't understand. Uh, it wasn't for the colors. Uh, the So Virginia played o- Auburn and won yesterday, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> yeah.
0: And only because people were ignoring various fouls. Yeah, that's true. And incidences of a double. Well, tournament. you know, i
1: tell you what was funny yesterday. Other than, I don't want to get into the specific games so much as um, – uh, especially the second one between Texas Tech and Michigan wasn't Michigan State wasn't very good, and and here's what's interesting: people talk about the great talents that come up, uh, and the great college talents only last a year, and then they go into the pros. They're drafted after a year, and it's called one and done. You've right. heard that phrase, right. and
0: in fact, there was a headline in one of the papers: um, Duke Zion is done. Yeah, uh, will it be Nick Zion or? Like, will he go on to no. the Knicks
1: or something? Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. one and done. Are you but, getting it? Yeah, I, I wasn't uh, following you. But the, all I'm really saying is that uh, Duke does one and done. They get all these guys that they know are going to play for a year. Kentucky does that. Several of the teams do it. And the tournament, all the publicity is about these big stars. And in part because of what you're saying. In part because teams, fans of the Knicks start speculating about these guys. There's all kinds of interest in their future going forward. What's interesting is, and I didn't realize this, the one-and-done guys don't decide the tournament because those teams get knocked out. You see, really? And it, that doesn't make sense. They're the biggest stars. But the last few years, none of the one-and-done players have gotten to the Final Four. And that includes this year. Duke got knocked out. Kentucky got knocked out. How can that be? Mm-hmm. Those are the big stars. Mm-hmm. And the answer is the other programs, which don't emphasize one-and-done, have players who play for three or four years. They're a little more mature. And those teams win. So they're not the most uh, talented guys. They're t- not going to the pros. I don't know if anybody from from, uh, from Virginia is going to the pros, honestly. Uh, I don't think anyone from Texas Tech is going to the pros. But it makes a difference when you're dealing with a kid who's 21 or 22 years old when someone who's 18. They're just different. And you they, they play these very big games. And you know something? They keep a head on their shoulders during the last five minutes when everyone's going insane. And those teams win the games. Virginia... It's like watching a bunch of bankers play basketball. I mean, I, I, you know, there's, nobody looks terribly talented, but they seem <laughs> terrible, terribly, terribly even keeled, and that's why I think they're going to win the tournament.
0: Do you have any admissions to make about uh, misjudging Duke?
1: Well, I never. Yeah, I thought Duke was most likely to win because of all that publicity. Uh, I also had kind a of co-favorite, Virginia. Virginia's still there, but um, you know, I never watched these teams well, during the year. Let's just be frank.
0: Yeah. you picked Duke, <laughs> oh, I, oh, but yeah. you've got. Virginia
1: in the, pool. in the pool. Yeah, well, the reason is because you pick, you can't win a pool by picking Duke, because everyone else picks Duke. Well, so. you
0: really can't now. I can't. <laughs> You're right about that.
1: Yeah, Duke was a huge disappointment. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they lost that game, but the previous two games they could have lost. Mm-hmm. And and you know, I don't don't start me on Shustevsky, the coach. I, it, they were a huge disappointment. But the real story is one of them does a headache. And when and when they asked Shustevsky about how, why does team lose, what did he say? So we played very young. Yeah.
0: All right. So they're 18. I have just one more thing to say about school colors. Yeah, go ahead. You want the real story about why it's orange and blue? Why? Complementary colors.
1: Is that right? Yeah. Well, it's orange and just...
0: blue, and uh, they pop. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, in yeah. a way that uh, gray
1: and red don't pop. Ah, let me say this again: Jericho High School, the Jericho Jayhawks, orange and blue. So keep that in mind. Got it. Yeah. Uh, All right, so here's something, but you know, just this half step to the side, while everyone's going crazy about uh, college basketball, a little uh, less attention is being paid, uh, but some, to uh, esports. Esports. And uh,
0: kids are raking in the bucks by playing esports. So much so. So it's not surprising. It's professional. They're trying to get an edge. It's
1: professional. So there's a big article in the Times about uh, gaming's new lifestyle less pizza, more yoga. And they're trying to discipline the players on these teams. Apparently, the teams are comprised of kids between kids, people between the age of 18 and 24 years old, uh, who grew up playing video games, who for some reason have it in their heads that you go to sleep at five in the morning, wake up at two, and have pizza all the time. That's not what these professional managers want to see from their team. So the article in the Times is about these two teams, which are owned by a uh, common owner. Uh, One is called Origin, or G-I-N. They're not really long on vowels. And the other is called Astralis, A-S-T-R-A-L-I-S. And um, what happens is this guy who was a trainer, got himself hired to straighten out the athletes on Astralis, and they became the all-time winning team in a game called Counter Strike Global Offensive, earning 3.7 million in a year, which is a lot of money, I guess, under any circumstances. So he let him loose to uh, train his uh, other team, uh, which is in uh, the the Legends League. And uh, so he's now training this other group. And they've caught fire, too. They've won 11 out of their final 13 matches. Um, And uh, it's all because they have a whole regimen in terms of physical working out. They have regular meal times. They eat regular <laughs> meals, and they're talking about they get them for breakfast. They give them uh, salmon and vegetable omelet for breakfast. Uh, they have a trainer. They actually have a therapist they meet with, meet with once a week, if you can believe it. Uh, they have all kinds of stuff. Uh, they make them do their laundry. Mm-hmm. That's a new thing, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, because they want them to seem more well, that's professional, kind of a fabulous thing.
0: So now mothers can say, you know, to their young sons and daughters who are playing on the uh, computer all day, you know, you, you want to do your laundry, you want to be, you know, a big famous uh, player on the circuit like so and so. You want to look like you know, something. They do their own laundry, you know. All right. Uh, well, uh, but it's interesting that uh, I guess the theory is that uh, if you're in good. Um sort of mental and physical shape, you have some kind of
1: edge here. oh yes and and it's clear now look, they have some special exercises. they have gaming specific exercise exercises, for example, the players wrap their fists inside elastic bands and flex their fingers as a regular exercise, so they'd be ready for the gaming right they have neck exercises so that they don't their energy doesn't flow i
0: gotta say when I look for a computer expert you know it's not uh you know the fit body type I'm no. looking for. No, you want to see you know, someone who looks like they've spent their whole time. I want to see somebody time. who has been in the basement the whole <laughs> time. Uh, you know, I figure that's the guy who's going to help me out well, I see, but my when it comes my this computer hole.
1: When it comes to betting on this kind of thing, you're going to change your view because it's the fit guys with the regular regimens that are going to start winning from now on. As they say, they, they sum it up here, they say, look, uh, they're very much like soccer players, these folks. They have the same DNA. They're just not aware of it yet. So, now okay. they know.
0: Interesting. Did you pick that article just because you want to uh, encourage any of your children to eat better?
1: Uh, no. No. No, I just... Uh, I just uh, The professionalization of everything. Nothing's safe. Not, not even uh, the leagues that are dominated by guys who spend their whole time hunched over a computer. Even they are being straightened up. Everything's uh, being uh, cleaned up in this country.
0: So, speaking of cleaning things up... Yeah. Uh, in one of my favorite magazines, BBC History. Yes. Was the history, a short history of vegetarianism. Yes. Okay. So it turns out that the choice to avoid animal products for spiritual and ethical reason, um, reasons has a long history. Years ago in Europe, they used to call vegetarians Pythagoreans. Because apparently Pythagoras uh, refused to eat slaughtered animals. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, So you have that. Around the 19th century is when societies uh, who uh, are vegetarians start to form. One of the first uh, formed in 1809 by a guy named William Cowherd. Interesting name for a vegetarian. Yeah. And uh, then later, in 1944, Donald Watson actually founds the Vegan Society. Mm -hmm. He was a woodworking teacher and uh, a conscientious objector, a teetotaler, and he visited his uncle's pig farm, saw them being slaughtered, and never ate meat again. Hmm. And uh, he also began, he felt that cows were being exploited for their milk, so he stopped uh, consuming dairy. Mm-hmm. That's what uh, begins to make him a vegan. Now um the he ends up avoiding medicines because of animal testing and uh, he won't even use he only uses a fork to dig up the vegetables he grows so he won't hurt the earthworms as he's digging if he mm-hmm. had a, a big giant uh, right. spade it's worth noting that uh, he actually lives to be, I think, 95 years wow. old. Wow, that's good. Uh, so he says it's because of the life he lived. Now, at a certain point, they're trying to figure out what to call themselves because non-dairy vegetarian is too big a name, too mm. big a mouthful. They also try Vitan, Dairy Ban, Benivore, all vegans the and they settle on vegan, which is uh, can be explained a couple of different ways. as one is it's the first two and the last two letters of vegetarian. Get it? Okay Vegan. Yeah. Also apparently uh, in London there was a very popular uh, restaurant, vegetarian restaurant named Vega or Vega, okay? Uh, so maybe they were all, you but I thought that was kind of fun. That whole little history about what is a vegan and how to get there. Guy's name was Donald Watson. May I just say I had an uncle Donald Watson. Yes. Not from England.
1: Very tall. And he
0: grew his own vegetables. Is that right? Yeah.
1: Interesting. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think he lived to be 92, but, uh, yeah. Um, Okay. Uh, so, there was an interesting article about time management. Uh, not the kind of article that would normally attract my attention, honestly. But uh, the theory here is this is a behavioral psychologist, is that, you know, time management, the whole approach uh, is often wrong. People say, if you're going to be good at time management, you've got to budget your day. You make a schedule at the beginning of the day, 15 minutes for this, a half hour for that, 45 minutes for X, and you follow that. And that's all about... Being productive. For years now, we've all
0: been trying to cram as much into any day as we can. Okay. What I like from this article is a quote from E.B. White. Did you see that? I did. Uh, Let me just read that. Um, E.B. White once wrote, I arise in the morning torn between a desire to improve or save the world and a desire to enjoy or savor the world. This makes it
1: hard to plan the day. What did he do? You, what did he wrote? little or something. What did he be like right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. So that so it's a problem. How do you how do you organize your day, right? And what what this person says, which I think is quite interesting, is you organize things around what's really attracting your attention. In other words, well, he doesn't really put it this way, but this is the way I would put it. He says it's all about, well, what he says it's all about attention management. It's the art of focusing on getting things done for the right reasons, in the right places, at the right moments. In other words, to the extent you're thinking of doing something, what are you drawn to and why are you drawn to it? Or if you're not sure whether you want to do it, think about why it might be worth doing it or what it might not. And as you go through this process, you're going to identify reasons that would make the task more compelling, let's say. And that's what draws you into doing And it's only by determining why you're compelled to do it or thinking about why you're attracted to do it or regardless of significant, are you going to succeed in doing it in a so-called productive and efficient way? Uh, and if you take it even a step backwards, and there's been some discussion of this too, it's a matter of deciding what are you really drawn to? What's on your mind? What's in your subconscious? What's driving you? And you might say, you know, I feel like doing something creative. I really want to think about X and Y. Do that. Do that. And then, when the time comes, your mind will naturally get into a different kind of a rhythm, where it's more ready to do mundane tasks or whatever. Don't obsess about doing any particular task in any particular time slot. Go with what you're what you're compelled to do, with some thoughtfulness about what would make the, the task compelling.
0: And I, I, I don't. Know,
1: does that make any sense to you? No,
0: it doesn't help me at all because <laughs> I think I think you're you're naturally drawn to do the stuff you want to do. Well, okay. chores. Yeah, you know, I don't want to write the checks. You know, pay the bills. You know, do well. Let me give an example. So
1: this fellow says, uh, "Look," he said, "Look, I didn't." Uh, I should give the name. The fellow name: Adam Grant. He said, "Look," um, you know, and I said to myself, uh, "I, you know, do I want to write this article for the New York Times?" He couldn't get excited. Couldn't get going about it, right? But he was thinking about a leadership class that he gave, in which this is fellow. He gives the name of Michael was unsettled and was looking for advice and was quite troubled about how he should go about uh, being more productive and organizing his day. And he started giving more thought, how can he help Michael? How can he help Michael? And the article became about how he can help Michael. What advice would he give Michael? That he could not find compelling. That's something he could get behind, and that's what got him to write this, which became he, the article. He
0: also says, do the big creative projects when you're at the height of your powers. That's true. So if you're a morning person, attack that then. But what's
1: confusing is some then, people are morning. And then
0: you do the the crap you don't want to do. You do uh, when you're half asleep in the afternoon. I, you know, I'm yeah. not really sure how all this.
1: I I, I kind of do that too, but you know, but for, then he says circadian rhythms are different for different people. Some people at the height of their powers in the afternoon. So right, he
0: said, and he said, so plan to, yeah, you know. Do the so, creative big stuff look,
1: then. At the very least, don't obsess about being productive in the sense of uh, making things go every minute. Just think of, from a task-based perspective.
0: I, I think he's also partly saying it's not how much you do, it's what you do.
1: Yeah, and the quality of what.
0: And we know. need to step back and yeah. be mindful of that. Yeah, okay. Speaking of some really excellent time management. Yes. Um, comes to mind... Uh, the, uh, the great Michelangelo once again, all right? Fantastic article yeah. in the Wall Street Journal magazine.
1: Yeah,
0: A beautiful photo spread of the Sistine Chapel. Hmm. And uh, the guy who's writing it, Cullen Murphy, actually goes up in, uh, you know, like a cherry picker yeah, and uh, gets to see up close and personal uh, the... Um, Sistine Chapel ceiling, etc. So mm-hmm. he has a fantastic experience. The article is called Durva, Divine Inter- Intervention. Let me say that right. Divine Intervention. And it's all about maintenance. It's about the preventive conservation of the Sistine I'm Chapel. I'm surprised they let
1: them do that. So they brought the cherry picker into the Sistine Chapel? and
0: It is in there. Oh. Um, they One of the things they need to do and uh, for a month, yeah. Uh, after the doors close uh, every night, they go through the whole chapel, check everything out. They have twenty five thousand people coming through that chapel every day. Mm. Okay, they bring with them all kinds of moisture and uh, perhaps bacteria. Um, they uh, CO two when they're breathing, Um, all these people, heat, etc. So all these visitors, millions of visitors, 7 million visitors a year will make an impact on the frescoes. Now they restored the frescoes in the 80s and 90s. They actually took off old layers of repairs and dirt and grime and did repairs to the cracks, etc. so that The Sistine Chapel changed dramatically in appearance uh, during that period, but the problem now is to maintain the progress and to keep reviewing the walls. For things like, you know, salts build up on the surface. When those salts build up, then it makes like a fog over the true colors of The fresco so they remove that and the way they do it is quite interesting They you know go up where they have to go up and with a piece of Japanese paper you know undyed very pure paper they uh, Kind of a big size 19 by 30 inches. They put that against the fresco they dampen it with distilled water using a brush and leave it on for three minutes, and then peel the paper off, mm-hmm. hoping that dust and salt, etc, comes off with the paper. If more intervention is needed after that, it will follow. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting. I actually knew about this process. I had read about the, you know, the original uh, restoration in the '80s and '90s was started out with this very simple process. But also you can do it at home. if you have a fresco. Hmm. that needs uh, attention. Um, you can, uh, you know, a conservator once told me, yeah, you just dampen some toilet paper and stick it up. Oh, that's not going to work. Well, yeah, it does. Well, it but does. It's not... you, you can use it on like, um, if you have like a brick fireplace and maybe there's a, a smoky area of yeah. the um, mortar between the bricks, yeah. you can stick up wet uh, toilet paper on that mortar. But You're not going to
1: pull it off. It's going to fall apart.
0: It It mashes together wet once it dries, it comes right off really? okay. and takes with it uh, yeah. surface uh, smoke, etc. Right. So, anyway, so it's a, a beautiful article, beautiful to see, mm-hmm. very interesting to read about mm-hmm. uh, the advanced technology used in exchanging the air and trying to maintain these beautiful works. And of course, it's always interesting to think about what that work of art looked like before they restored when everything was dull and brown and uh, depressing looking <laughs> and then after it was cleaned up entirely changed our 20th century 21st century understanding of the colors that mm-hmm. michelangelo used so that's a great article cullen murphy yeah. in the wall street journal magazine mm-hmm. and it also engaged uh, a um, lot of fun uh, comments in the uh you know in, in the comment area of the online newspaper okay people said funny
1: things good so like, like. no I, well they're, not they're, worth know, there's a long
0: rant about uh, um Michelangelo's uh, people not wearing enough clothing and, oh really and what uh, what was done about that and what are they trying to hide? He keeps saying. Um, so, uh, but anyway, that's a subject for another time.
1: Okay. Uh, all right. And I have
0: more. Yes, I have more. Museum <laughs> update. Okay. And this was a little mention in uh, the Wall Street Journal of an upcoming silver exhibition at RISD the Rhode Island School of Design in Providence. RISD, yeah. And uh, Mm -hmm. down the street from RISD was a very famous uh, silver company, Gorham. And uh, they are putting on a show, basically the history of Gorham Silver. And it starts May 3rd. It's going to go through December. And uh, it's called Changing... Oh no, no. What is it called? I don't even know what it's called. It's basically the uh, Designing Brilliance, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, the History of Gorham Silver. It's also going to travel to Cincinnati and to Charlotte, North Carolina. So uh, keep your eye out if uh, you're in that part of the country. Uh, yeah. Maybe you'll get a chance to see it. Also, at the same um, Rhode Island School of Design is an ongoing exhibition uh, called Changing Reflection, a look at silver metalwork and jewelry uh, from the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, which would be a nice complement to that. You know, Providence is a fun town to go to. I mean, it's been on. It's been through some hard times, but uh, it has famously good pizza, right? Yeah. And uh, no, it's
1: fun. I like Providence.
0: Yeah, we stayed in a, a funky hotel. Right. Like yeah, a hip the, hotel, hip, well, yeah. the, the Dean. Hip hotels. We
1: went, we went to a basketball game. It was uh yeah we they got bars really nice excellent rest, restaurant yeah that's right uh, very. and there's a new one that opened there too that we had heard about but we haven't been there. Yeah it's it's, it's an interesting food scene. Remember yeah, I told got, we someone relocated. it. gotta get back there. Yeah
0: so, so maybe we will. No I like Providence, Providence. Well it's an interesting
1: combination of an old time working town that's been sort of redone. And uh, reborn in some respects. Yes,
0: yes, you're absolutely right. Full yeah. of all kinds of political yeah. corruption and uh, well, difficulties. Well, that's, and that's uh, the story of Rhode Island. It's, yeah,
1: uh, old time Italian politics. uh All right. So speaking of old time Italian, uh we have two obituaries, uh, both uh Italian Americans. uh Joe Bellino died. Joe Bellino. Some people are listening, say, "Oh my God, Joe Bellino died." And other people gang saying, "Who?" Uh, I'll be most everybody. Joe Bellino was a college football player at Navy. He won the Heisman Trophy. The man won the Heisman Trophy. How could he be forgotten? He won in 1960. Uh, people always remember Roger Staubach as the great uh, naval football hero who won the Heisman Trophy in 1963. Well, three years earlier, Joe Bellino did it. So Roger Does didn't that do anything. Like new. Roger
0: Staubach is close to 81.
1: Uh, Because that seems unbelievable. That's an interesting point. Unbelievable. He's he's 78. Oh, my gosh. But in any event, uh, Bellino was – but but college football was so different. I mean, Bellino was a running back for Navy. He weighed 180 pounds. He learned he won the Heisman by an overwhelming point total when he was summoned from his electrical engineering class by the rear admiral. As Uh, one does. As one (laughs) does. (laughs) <laughs> and Bellino said I'm very pleased so there. <laughs> and uh, then he went into the Navy because it used to be you had a military yes commitment. very pleased sir exactly right spends four or five years in the Navy and uh, then he comes out and he decides he's going to give pro football a shot uh, as you'd expect but it uh, unfortunately doesn't work out I mean he's just not really good enough to play professional football the way he put it he said he had lost his passion for the game I guess that could happen Right. Yeah. But he hung around for four or five years without passion, and uh, then he got into uh, the catering business. Uh, And he bounced around, honestly. But he he did all right. He was always an upstanding guy. uh, Good naval career. Uh, What's interesting, though, you think about him from a previous era, you know, you can't relate to it except for one thing. There are these connections, and the connection is that there was this young fan, one of his biggest fans, when he was at the Naval Academy was, uh, you guessed it, Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick's father, as you may know, was an assistant football coach at Navy.
0: Oh, I had no idea.
1: And uh, Bill Belichick was so enamored of Bellino that he used to hang around all the time, so much so that when Bellino uh, graduated, he gave his midshipman's cap.
0: To the young Belichick? To the
1: young Bill Belichick. And uh, Bill Belichick did give it back uh, 50 years later, as he said, because it belongs in, in the Bolino family. But uh, So there's a connection with Joe Bolino. Certainly Bill Belichick, highly aware of Joe Bolino. Yeah. And uh, talking about Italian-American, the final uh, piece is about a guy named Mike Greco, who is known as the Salami King of Little Italy. He had a place on Arthur Avenue. Uh, and it was one of these big Italian groceries, right? Little Italy in the Bronx. Little Italy in the Bronx. And we
0: have had some great times on Arthur Avenue. Yes. Because it happened to be close to a couple of uh, sports venues for us. Right. It's right uh, next to Fordham, where we used to go to water polo games quite a bit, and also not too far from Columbia's football stadium, where you would see your nephew, Sean right play football. play
1: football and and this guy you know he had exactly what you'd expect uh, they had you know this very it's, it's I'm looking at the photo and you had seen it before of this this grocery with all the cured meats hanging down from the ceiling all the salamis and whatever and the brisket. Uh and or salumi as uh, we say uh, yes salumi right but what's interesting about this is you know and he poses in his in his own view his Mussolini type pose. Uh, with a cigar, a very fearsome figure he, he would go to the uh, his market seven days a week six in the morning came from uh, Calabria, a Calabrian immigrant and that was his life uh, he passed away at 89, made a great success and he was a ruler with an iron fist so as it happened, his son writes a play uh, about it and the play is called Behind the Counter with Mussolini eh. <laughs> About his dad being Mike, Mike Greco, right. Yeah. And uh, which depicts uh, the struggle between an industrious immigrant father, if you can believe it, and a rebellious son who goes to college and discovers a world beyond the counter of the family's deli. And it was produced in various small theaters in New York uh, in uh, the late 1900s. Um, and uh, what's funny about it is uh, Mike Greco uh, liked the play. He liked the play, even though he's uh, he's uh sort of uh, shown in a somewhat harsh light. And interesting, his quote is kind of very revealing. The man, Mike Greco, who spent his entire time behind the counter, he said, here's the quote, talking about his son. He says, by himself, he discovered I gave him something good. The play, it's 100% true. That's why it makes me a proud father. He finally found out who is Michael Greco. Which is kind of interesting because, you know, as a father, as a parent, uh, it's interesting to see if your children ever bother to find out who you are, you know?
0: Oh, I don't want them to know who I am. (laughs) I think some things are better left unknown.
1: Well, that might be. But uh, Mike uh, Greco wasn't disturbed by it, and he was quite pleased by it. So uh, there you go. Well, that's a nice story. It is a nice story. um, That's
0: why I'm salivating. We better run to dinner.
1: We have to. So the the tournament's tomorrow. Tomorrow night, you're going to pick a winner between uh, Virginia and Texas Tech?
0: Well, I I understand our family fortunes are riding on Virginia. That's
1: right. We're going to have a whole new microphone next week. Uh, Yeah, Virginia. Although... uh, it is funny. I mean, these teams... So you know
0: what that means, listeners. We're Run going, out right now. Put your money on Texas Tech. Yeah, you
1: know, it's just what we were talking about a moment ago. The idea of these these more mature players. You know, the star player from the last game for Texas Tech is what's called a, a, a graduate assistant. I had some eligibility left. who graduated college some years ago. 24 years old. Uh, he was the big star. He's not going to play professional basketball, I'll tell you right now. But it's different when you're 24 than when you're 18.
0: You know what this uh, series has taught me? Anything could
1: happen. Well, that's true, too.
0: All right. On that note, this is Tamsin Granger. And this
1: is Dan Abuhal.
0: We'll see you next week with Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. Adios. (laughs)